0: You're
1: listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all.
0: How many threads lead us to survival? On this episode, a conversation with Erica Hecht, author of Don't Ask My Name, The Hidden Child's Tale of Survival. After the break, contributor Rory Vesey with another edition of Rory's Island. Erica, welcome to the podcast. So, well, I'm wonderful to have you you. here. So, let's go right to the title of the book. The title of the book is uh, very dramatic. Where did that come from?
2: Well, it comes from that scene in the middle of the book, or one third of the book, when uh, my mother asked me my name. And I was supposed to know my false name, the name by which I was going to be in hiding. Right. But I didn't realize that in the middle of the night I had to lie even to her, so I told her my real name, and she got extremely angry and she beat me up, and she told me if I ever use that name again, we'll die. So, don't ask my name became a very important part of my life. Also, I had so many names in my various uh, incarnations of what I, or who I was right. and what I was that. Um, that it became very important that at one time when I was in my early teens, I always stopped for a while. If somebody asked my name, I had to wait a moment to remember which of my names could I really say that would be safe because I had by then about
0: four. In a sense, was this book carthatic for you, that you open up a lot of memories? And I think a lot of these memories are difficult, but you put them out there, and in a sense, you were quite brave. So what point did you decide to write this
2: book? Uh, it started by, if you read the book, you know that I went to this conference and I started uh, being asked to keep uh, to speak to various groups, children in schools right. and uh, uh, study groups who were dealing with the Holocaust, synagogue study groups, all kinds of groups to speak to them. And I made my speeches. My speeches had to do with the story of my survival. And uh, as I was going along, my daughter, who was very interested in the whole thing, uh, said to me, why don't you make notes of what you are saying? Because in every every time I spoke, I had some different um, uh, stories that came up. So I started to jot down some notes uh, of the things that I was talking about to these groups. And those became the outline or the, or the basis for the book.
0: The one thing we've explored on this podcast, even in the first segment, is is memory. Can you take us back to your earliest memories about where you grew up and the relationship with your father's family and your mother's family? Because that is almost, a sense, is the genesis of what you became, those early, early memories. Can you share some of that with us?
2: Yes. Well, my early memories, I think uh, I had to do a lot with my paternal grandmother, And I mean, my maternal grandmother, not with my paternal grandmother, because I lived with them when my mother was divorced and was working. I lived with my grandmother, Adele, and my grandfather, Bela. This is before I started school. And they still had a pretty organized lower middle class life. They were at one time uh, much wealthier, but they lost their fortune in the crash in the 20, whatever, whatever year, it was 28, I think. And they became somewhat more humble and, but they had a nice life. They had a nice apartment. My grandfather had a business and, uh, and that's where I lived with them and they were religious. My grandfather was religious. She went to synagogue. She laid Twillum, which is what it was called when you do those things on your arm. And, um, And I lived there until I went to first grade. But by first grade, I was converted. My mother converted when I was three and a half years old. But my grandparents had nothing to do with that, and they didn't want to accept the reality of it. Except my grandfather told my mother, whatever you do is right as long as it saves your life. My mother had full permission from my grandfather, the religious Jewish man, to do whatever she wanted, convert, take us somewhere, teach us different names, so that uh, it became uh, a uh, life-saving. That was, the, that was the bottom line.
0: As a young child, did you understand what was going on, or you just found the wishes of your mother?
2: Uh, I think, yes, I, I, it was her wishes, but I also understood I mean, you can't. I understood when we went to that uh, the church to get uh, converted, which I think was basically a first communion for my mother. I understood how serious it was that it wasn't for real that it had to be done. I didn't probably understand the whole the whole situation at age five or six, but I understood that it was serious. I understood that it uh, it was uh, it was life threatening. And I understood that I better follow what I was told to do or else.
0: There's a big issue outside the covers of this book, and I will try to share it with you and the people listening to this podcast. And that's people who are not aware of their Jewish heritage and roots. I think of uh, former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright didn't know she had a Jewish heritage.
2: Until she was 13. It was a big secret after the war.
0: Then also you have a lot of people that emigrated from French Canadians emigrated down to Louisiana and the women were starting mm-hmm. to have babies, and the babies were having health problems and delivery in delivering the birth because they had Tay Sachs and they didn't know they were Jewish, which essentially affects Jewish people. And even going back to the Spanish Inquisition and people never you know, you're wiping away.
2: The yeah, yeah, I know your your roots. Let me ask you a question. Did yes. you ever come across a book called The Mezuzah and the Madonna's Foot?
0: Well, I'll tell you how I know about that. I watched your interview at the Museum um, of Jewish Heritage. And I want to tell you this, by the way, this whole podcast is for storytellers. And you are a gifted storyteller. So to answer your question, you. till I watched that interview, I didn't know. Yeah. But tell, tell my audience about that book, please.
2: Well, that's a book about uh, but Jews who had to deny their Jewishness, and this is at the time of the Spanish Inquisition, and they had to become non-Jews. But um, and non-Jews uh, have to have a Madonna outside the door or something that that uh, defies them as, as not being Jewish. So what happened was that uh, Jewish people, in order to be able to kiss the mezuzah, you know, the mezuzah being the Jewish, that Jewish uh, religious symbol. And they used Jewish people are in the habit of kissing that. It's sort of a holy thing. Anyway, in order to be able to do that, they hid it in the foot of the Madonna outside the door. Right. So when they came home, they kissed the foot of the Madonna, not not giving away the fact that there was a mezuzah in the foot. And that's what the book is all about about the Spanish, Spanish Inquisition. But but basically that was that was the major story that stuck in my mind when I read it.
0: Now, you are a witness to history, which is why I, it's, it's so important to have you on record. Not just yeah. for me, but for anybody who watches your presentations, reads your book, that you were around the rise of the Nazis, pre-war, war, and post-war. Can you share mm-hmm. on a very personal level what you experienced
2: well, what I experienced, generally speaking, was that I was nowhere at home and I was everywhere at home. I had no real commitment except for short periods of time because I was a Catholic and I went to Catholic schools. But I was also a Jew because I still had my Jewish uh, heritage. Right. I had my, uh, my grandmother living with us after the war. And my grandfather was dead. He died in the ghetto. And so I was Jewish as well, but I was a Catholic. My mother's wishes were that we are remaining Catholics forever so that this thing cannot happen to us again. But at home, we were Jewish because I wasn't supposed to mix the dishes. Right. I couldn't use milk, egg, and fly, dishes together. because that, That's how Jews kept the dishes separate. So I was Jewish. I was Catholic. Uh, In Hungary, right after the war, and a little bit thereafter, before the full communist takeover, in the late 1940s, before we left for Vienna, I was becoming a communist because that's what I was learning in school. I had a a diary I had to deliver to a communist uh, woman who was the gym teacher. And I had very communist ideas about what life should be and would be about. So I was everywhere and I was nowhere. And as much as I was comfortable almost anywhere, I was never attached to anything.
0: That's a quote in a story that the local newspaper, the East Hampton Star, did about you, because I took that quote out. And I thought about this. Do you still feel like, in a sense, existentially, that you're rootless because you've had to move around so much, you've had a successful life, interesting life. But I wonder if you feel that you are grounded somewhere or anywhere at this point in your life?
2: Yes. I'm only grounded in myself. That's it. I am not grounded in anything external. Uh, I like this. I like that. I like my little house now. I like my bigger house before. I liked another house before that. I'm at home where I am. But basically because I carry me with me. And that's inside of me. Not anywhere else.
0: I'm going to pick up on that if you don't mind. Um, I -hmm. have interviewed... Holocaust survivors, um, Tomas Blatt survived, Sobibor, some other people. And the one thing I took away from that is they were very comfortable in talking to strangers, but not comfortable in sharing the stories that they experience with loved ones. Are you more comfortable talking to me than you are yeah. to more people closer to you in your life about what you witnessed and went through?
2: Not anymore, no. After I went to that conference in the 1990s, and I really came out with my story, which until then was quite hidden. I was not living up to it because my Jewish family that I married into didn't want to hear about it either until then. But then I was coming out with it, and it took me a while to accept my own story. But when I did, and when my kid, my, especially my daughter, who, who shared a lot of it with me, uh, and when all that was happening, I'm comfortable. As a matter of fact, tell you another story. The other day, a friend of mine who missed my book signing pulled up and asked me if I could sell her a couple of books at home and sign them. right. So she came over. Uh, she's an intelligent woman, she's an artist, she's educated. she's even European. you know what she asked me? She said to me, "Now that people know your story, are you embarrassed? Really? Do you feel intimidated? I looked at her and I thought she was talking to me from another world. I said, why? It never occurred to me to feel that. I am liberated. I feel free. You know my story. You know I did this and I did that. You know I've been here and I went there. No, I don't feel at all intimidated by my own story or, or or, no. I'm quite comfortable with myself these days.
0: I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast Artful Periscope. My guest is Erica Hecht talking about her book, Don't Ask My Name, Subtitle: Hidden Child's Tale of Survival. Well, you've had some harrowing tales in this book about survival. Correct me if I, I misstate this, but I believe you're in a wagon and you're being caught between the Russians and the Germans. And basically, I think you may have ended up in a ditch. Did you have a German officer kind of help you because they didn't realize you yeah. were Jewish?
2: Well, uh, I would not exactly swear to that. I am sure that this very sophisticated man who was a, uh, an accomplished musician and, and, and a high-ranking officer, but an accomplished musician, I and Viennese at that, that he had a very good idea in the back of his mind that we weren't just in the ditch with no papers and with nothing because we were refugees like a lot of the other people and trying to uh, get away from the Russian occupation. No, I'm sure that he suspected it, but it was never, to my knowledge, never brought up and never uh, uh, never uh, made into a story. Now, he must have known. He was a beautiful man. I remember him well.
0: There's another part of this that may, may have saved your life. A family member went off to the side of the road. There was a German officer there, I believe, and he started – and I'm being graphic because you speak about this in one of your presentations – started peeing. Yeah. And if you know yeah. about uh, – well, if you watch a Jewish baby being circumcised, sometimes you have to stay back from watching that. But in a sense – and I want you yeah. to render the tale for the rest of us – that kind of may have saved your life, What he, what he did.
2: It, well, it, well we had, he had no papers. He was my stepfather, and he is the one who escaped from a, uh, from a work camp on the Russian front and ended up with us on this odyssey where we were on. But uh, he, uh, he had no papers, uh, but he spoke German because he was Austrian, and this German force, the German peop- uh, soldiers uh, were looking for a translator and engaged him together with us come on their trucks to collect some food in the villages if we could and uh, and my my mother was very worried as she always was sometimes with good reason and she said why well, we have no you have no papers you have to be careful we have to be careful and he said don't worry I made sure I peed next to the main officer so that he could see that I have a non-circumcised penis and that was a, that was almost better than any papers he could have had.
0: After, when, If you did become aware, and I'm sure, i sure you did, what was your reaction to Anne Frank's story? Because I knew we had some members in your family that had to hide, be hidden too. That's a classic quintessential story of survival, Anne Frank's story. What is, Could you, could you yeah. relate to that?
2: Well, uh, in a sense, yes. It was a long time ago. I was impressed with the story. It was well put together. And, but it was, of course, very sad that she died. So that was, um, it negated a lot of it because the, the bottom line on everything that we did or I did or I was made to believe in was survival, no matter what. And in the service of survival, you can lie and cheat and steal and sometimes even kill just in order to survive because that's your major function in life. And that's the that's the belief and the thing that I I really ended up with. So it was very sad that she didn't survive, but um, but she didn't uh, like a- so many did. My cousins didn't survive, right. and seventeen people in my family didn't survive. So um, that's the sad part of it.
0: Uh, after the war. Where did you go? I believe you were in Vienna, London, and then eventually Montreal, where a lot of Jews ended up. So, kind of take us through that journey because it's another part of your life that I found was, uh, well, it's another aspect of survival.
2: We left Hungary just a moment uh, before the communists officially took over in 1948. And then we went to Vienna. And in Vienna, I was uh, attending a convent school for a while until I got thrown out. And then... um, Eventually, I ended up in a school outside of Vienna, a convent school, boarding school in St. Pelton, from where I then went to summer vacation in London and uh, Brighton, again with the convent, and decided not to go home. My mother's condition was deteriorating. I didn't realize how mentally affected she was, but she was impossible. And it was very difficult to live with her, and I didn't want to go home. So I somehow managed to arrange to be accepted at a boarding school, a convent boarding school in London, where I went and I did my fifth form, my last form. And from there, I did three entrance examinations, London, Cambridge and Oxford universities and uh, went home for the summer vacation after two years and intending to go back to one of those universities, but never made it because my mother... I told me we didn't have enough money to do that, so I did not go back, and um, I remained in Vienna, which where I eventually went to medical school. Yeah,
0: you, I, you mentioned no, yeah. You, you mentioned England, England, and Cambridge and Oxford, and throughout, even after the war, they've had a history of anti-Semitism. Um, to what degree did anti-Semitism still affect your life even after the war was over? Today. Yeah, yeah, today, the process leading up to that, because it seems to be on the rise again, anecdotally, and it's, well, it's still a problem.
2: Yes, it is, and it always has been. And uh, I've always been aware of it. I've always been sensitive to it, maybe even too sensitive to it at times. But it never exactly uh, went away for me. And the only time when I was kind of exempt of directly being affected by it was the time when I was married to my very Jewish, very committed Jewish husband, who was a great supporter of Jewish causes, who was uh, a supporter of Israel, who was extremely politically involved in everything. And for a while, that gave me a sense of security. But eventually, I realized that it wasn't. I could not uh, live with or, or... appropriate the identity of another person it wasn't my identity i couldn't go there i felt secure in its surroundings but i couldn't go there so it didn't really work for me
0: did you reinvent yourself as an interior decorator you seem to have a very successful interior decorator. that life you seem to be very successful that can you share uh your experiences doing that
2: Oh, well, that was, that was a good experience in many ways. I mean, I, I, I came to it because I did a lot of work for my own houses and house. Uh, it was, um, I became very successful addict very fast and made quite a bit of money for the first time in my life. But it wasn't enough anymore. My life was falling apart the way it was at that point. Uh, My marriage was falling apart, Uh, nothing was really working out, so um, uh, I eventually gave it up and I gave up the marriage and got divorced and became much more involved with, uh, that's how I ended up in New York at the conference and starting to deal with my past or with my problems of identity. I want you That's
0: to talk a little more, happened. a little more about that conference. I believe what I understood is that kind of was memorable for you, was life changing. You kind of touched upon that, but why was that so powerful to yeah. speak at that? It was 1991 New York City, because, correct?
2: Because because, uh, because the, um, the 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 one of the one of the persons who was conducting this uh, uh, workshop, it was all workshops, and the workshops were being conducted by professionals all of whom were survivors, and this particular woman and this particular workshop singled me out. And I was not going to talk about my past. I was not going to deal with nothing. I just wanted to know what was going on. But I was not going to become part of it. Well, this woman broke me wide open. Before I knew it, I was crying and sobbing and telling my story. And once it came out, once it started to come out, it didn't stop. It continued that night. It continued the next few days and it continued being there. Uh, not to be denied. It could not be put back into the, you know, into the dark again. And, um, it influenced my life enormously. I eventually created groups of uh, Hungarian child survivors. I joined them in New York. I created some groups in Montreal and eventually hosted a conference. Was 360 people in New York, in Montreal. Um, and for, I don't know, I mean, 45 or something workshops. I still have all the programs for that. And that was very successful. And it established me in my own identity of being a Jew and a Christian at the same time and made my stories a reality instead of like uh, things that were denied or hidden or no more hiding
0: Oh, I'm glad it's you're not, you're not hiding books. from us um, I guess is Erica Heck. the book is called Ask My Name a hidden child's tale of survival this is a quote I came across in an Eastern uh, newspaper and it's kind of provocative in a sense but it's probably true to yourself the quote is I'm not religious I'm anti-religious what did you mean by that?
2: Ah, there you are. <laughs> okay. I am. I am anti-religious, but I'm also anti-any and all, strong organizations of any kind. I'm anti-organizational. It should be really, really the the, uh, the over, overriding title because I think that any strong organizational thing that you confess uh, loyalty to, is not good for your health. I mean, it is not good to be one-sided or to so committed or or to be uh, or to be to be. Well, you can't be a full Catholic, and I don't want to be a full Jew, and I can't be a full communist. And I can't be a full anything else because those are all doctrines right. that take you over and cloud your judgment and make you somebody that you really don't want to be shouldn't Um, be. I'm against
0: that. We have a few minutes left. I've learned over the years of doing these kinds of programs and conversation that I'm remiss. I leave out some questions that should be asked. So if we missed something that's really central, significant to you, what would that be in terms of your life and your book?
2: I am not sure I understand your question. The question
0: is, did I miss anything in terms of this conversation and... The spirit of your book that we have not discussed yet.
2: Well, how uh, how suffering and danger and um, and how how all how all of that affects your whole life. Number one, and the other thing that I thought I took away from it, and I've always marveled about, is our own attitude to children. I think we don't realize how adult children really are. Right. And how knowledgeable they can be and how helpful. And I think we are missing out. I don't say that they should have bad times. I'm just saying I still feel a little bit embarrassed when little children are being treated like little children. Like you go to a restaurant and people forgive them the terrible behavior because they are children. I think that 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 irks me the wrong way because you can teach children so much more and you can make them so much more comfortable and happier later on if you really just take their potential and use
0: it. Uh, The last thing I'm going to ask you, and you can answer this any way that you want, but I'm thinking about the Holocaust. I'm thinking about a lot of places where lives were wiped out in massacres and tremendous loss of life. And there are a lot of people that, uh, because uh, they were exterminated in, in camps, we became dust there are a lot of unmarked graves if you could put if you believe in having a gravestone if you could put an epitaph on your gravestone what be, what would be there for you to explain your life
2: don't take life you don't take uh, your circumstances too seriously don't take your lies for the truth in other words whatever you were forced to do or to say or to commit is not your truth. Find your own truth within yourself without the circumstances. Something like that. I mean, it's too long for a grave. That's song. all right. That, but, yeah.
0: That's your thoughts. And I, I want to thank you so much for sharing your truth with us. The book is called Don't Ask My Name. My guest is Erica Heck. The book is subtitled A Hidden Child's Tale of Survival.
1: The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful
0: Periscope. Joining us now is contributor Rory Vesey with another edition of Rory's Island.
3: Close your eyes and imagine you are 22 years old about to graduate university with a degree in architecture. You're deciding on an internship. Imagine you have defied your family and at age 27 have a husband and you are working as a police officer in Kabul. Or that you are a multimedia journalist freelancing for the BBC, surprised at how quickly your career is moving. Imagine after school or work going to Nawin Yuran restaurant, a veritable hotspot in Kabul. There are students from the nearby college hanging out, listening to music, drinking tea with employees of foreign NGOs. Seventy percent of the crowd is made up of women. Is it hard to conjure up that picture of Kabul? Keep your eyes closed and envision being a 73-year-old woman, having once fled your country, returning in 2002, now being named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in 2021. For your work as an activist for women's rights. Now open your eyes and know, as of August 15th, with the fall of Kabul, with the withdrawal of the United States and its allies, all of your visions and hopes have come to an abrupt but definite end. No internships, no diploma you were working for, no job. And if you were a journalist, policewoman, or the editor of a woman's magazine, you are afraid for your very life. Do you flee or try to? Do you hide? 40 million people cannot all leave or hide. If you speak to or read journalists who have lived in and covered Afghanistan over the past 30 years, you will find that they are enthralled and enamored with this country and its people. Surprised? You are if you think of only burkers, beatings and beheadings when you think of this country wedged between six nations. In the West, when a teenage girl comes home and declares, my dreams are ruined, my life is over, you probably know it's dramatic teenage angst but not for these girls it is their reality most of these girls have never known life under the taliban and now they are told to stay home not to come to work as well as what to wear and what not to say yet many are pushing back including the 73 year old woman mabuba saraj women are protesting smack in the face of the taliban soldiers taking to the streets though usually forced back or detained and sometimes beaten. The owner of the restaurant I mentioned closed his doors when he hid in a closet, hearing the Taliban intended to behead him. Now all the restaurants and hotel lobbies are loud with their silence. I have heard these women speak in BBC interviews, many presented by London press broadcaster of the year, Lise Doucette. These women speak eloquently and every one of them, no matter how high a position they have held speak through heartfelt and heartbreaking tears. They cannot choke back their emotions. Quick history. Afghanistan was not a nation of extremists in the 60s and 70s. When the Russians occupied the country in the 80s, many of the freedoms were lost and the Afghan government was corrupt. Then they were defeated by a ragtag group of some claiming to run a holy war. Taliban then took hold in the 90s. When the United States arrived after 9-11, the aid and the internet flowed. The Taliban were no longer in charge, and while corruption was rampant, 6 million of 18 million women now stood as having been educated and have worked in government, business, hospitals, and schools. Now the American University of Afghanistan, it's a base for Taliban fighters. The banks have closed, the country is fast falling into economic ruin, aid is evaporating, and the families live in fear, many displaced, and they face starvation. In the end, the tears do not muffle the thoughts of these women. Forced to flee her country, Fatima Galani, who was involved in peace talks in Qatar, refuses to give up hope. She told Lee, sobbing, I cannot because we deserve this to be human. She says the world seems to have designated this country a lost cause, but people are never a lost cause. What it comes down to is the women, the mothers, the daughters, and yes, even the fathers as well, want to be safe, to go to work, to feed their families, to create and strive toward their visions and help their children do the same, just like all of us. And these women are ready to battle. The free women of the Western world should learn about the struggle of their sisters. When I hear them unashamedly cry, yet speak words of strength and face the worst kinds of danger, I know what the journalists see they are the best of us. I would like to close by reading a few lines from Sea Prayer, which was written by Khalid Hosami, an Afghan-American novelist. Because all I can think tonight is how deep the sea and how vast, how indifferent.
0: Thanks to Erica Hecht and Rory Vesey. I'm Larry Davidson. To the next time. Bye-bye.
1: The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Cricifaro sound editors and engineers Dean Meyer and Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa and you can find her music at starfrost.com October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com you can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all.
3: She tied to her kitchen chair. She broke your throne and she cut your hair